A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Stephen Mothersoul, who is the CEO of Chemical Search International. Stephen's a global guy who got a bachelor's in chemistry at Hull University in the UK before heading west to the glorious town of Cincinnati, Ohio, where he studied at the University of Cincinnati and had a great experience there before moving back across the pond over to the UK, working in investment banking as a chemicals equity analyst and then ultimately joining air products and chemicals in the UK, uh, as well as Pennsylvania and Hamburg and other places. In 2000, Stephen founded Chemical Search International and grew it to become a well-respected executive search firm for chemical sectors worldwide. So we're going to be talking recruiting, executive search, and other great things today. Stephen, welcome to The Chemical Show. Victoria, thanks a lot. Nice to be here. Absolutely. What is your origin story? So we've covered a little bit in that bio, but what's your origin story? What got you interested in the chemical industry and ultimately executive search? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, so you covered a few things there. So yeah, I mean, I think at school, uh, chemistry was something I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed test tubes and doing things in the kitchen, as you do. Uh, my parents didn't, but I did. Uh, but yeah, as you, as you said, I went to uh, I went to Hull University, did a BS in uh, in chemistry. Uh, had a no idea what to do at that point, and uh, decided to head west. Uh, I applied to a number of uh, American universities, including University of Honolulu, uh, who rejected nice. me. Because yeah, oh. for some reason they thought I wasn't going there to study. But uh, go figure. There we go. Uh, but yeah, so in the end, I went to Cincinnati University, spent two years there, did a master's. Started a PhD, but I uh, decided to, to head back home uh, before finishing that one. There you go. So, yeah, I came back to the UK um, with the intention of getting into a chemical company. Um, bizarrely, I, I could I found it very hard to get a job at that point um, during, the I think, this particular part of the, uh, of the economic cycle. So in the end, I went into the city with a very unusual move to do. Uh, a friend of mine who worked in banking said, you can be an equity analyst. Um, and I remember my first interview and they said, what do you know about stocks and shares? And I said, uh, not very much, to be frank, uh, but I'm happy to learn. And that's really where things started. So I did that for about three years, um, then left, did an MBA in Barcelona, decided to then really try even harder and join a chemical company. So I did. Uh, and as you said, I joined uh, Air Products and Chemicals, did a stint in Allentown, Pennsylvania, five years in Germany. Uh, and what got me into this, into the executive search game, is actually, well, necessity, actually. Um, so I found myself needing a job after our products tried to purchase uh, BOC, I think their nearest rival. Uh, the European Commission, of course, said, no, that's not going to happen. So in the end, I, I knew it was on the, on the cards where I interviewed with lots of different uh, search firms. And I, I kind of dawned on me after a while that not many of them at the time uh, in Europe 
uh, seem to understand the chemical industry very well. Uh, at least that's my perception. Uh, and so I thought to myself, you know, how hard can this be? Uh, I'll set a search firm up and see whether I can either A, find myself a job, uh, or B, I might enjoy it so much I keep doing it. And of course, uh, you know, the answer was B. Um, you know, 23 years later, we're still doing it. And uh, I'm enjoying it mentally. What can I say? Awesome. So that's what I got. That's how I got into doing it. There we go. Very cool. So tell us a little bit about Chemical Search International. Yep. So we started really with just myself um, way back in 2000. Uh, slowly grew over the years. Um, and our, our recipe was always the same. We, we decided to effectively um, you know, maximize on the industry knowledge understanding. because That was the bit that was missing. So um, everyone who works for us now, we're about 15, uh, 15 at the sharp end who do the actual search work. Um, we're all from the industry. We all work for large chemical companies somewhere or other. Um, and we, today we're about, um, we're about equally split. Um, some folks in the States, some of us in Europe, and some guys in Asia. Um, and we do middle to C-suite roles, effectively, uh, as a proper executive search. That's what we do. Um, so I think you know, we've had a few USBs, I suppose. Um, I think one of them, of course, is the global nature, what we do. Uh, another one, very much, we're all from the industry, so we we uh, you know we think we know what we're talking about, which is a good thing. And I think the other thing as well, which I really uh, maximise upon, is this all sort of the consultative nature of what we do. Uh, we we very much like to act as a partner. We don't just say resumes. We you know we interview in in depth. We do in a very consultative, uh, sort of super selective kind of way. Uh, and clients seem to like that. So that's that's us. Very cool. What are the key trends that you're seeing today in executive search? The executive search, well, okay. Um, there, there are a few. I, I think, I mean, there's a number of number of issues, a number, a number of things going on yeah, within the industry. Um, are you talking about macro trends or, or things relating specifically to executive search? Let's let's do executive search, and then we're gonna we're gonna dive go deep, and then we'll come back out and let's talk in the mouth of macros first. But let's talk about well, okay, actually, we're gonna flip this, Stephen. Okay, all right, okay, hang tight. Um, what are the trends that you see going on in the industry? And and you're sitting in Europe, so you've got a different point of view than I certainly have sitting in the U.S. and a lot of my guests. What are the trends that you see going on and how does that translate then to your business and what you do with, from a search perspective? Well, there's a few, I suppose, obvious trends going on right now um, across the industry. I mean, there's some really obvious ones. I mean, diversity and inclusion is now a very large, uh, very big issue, very current topical issue. Uh, and all search firms, including ourselves, uh, are always asked to try and find you know, a diverse slate of candidates. Um, Easier said than done sometimes, unfortunately. Um, and uh, you know, the, industry, the chemical industry is is not unique in this perspective, but you tend to find um, within the industry that the further away from the, um, I suppose the further away from the cracker you get, the more diverse mm. it gets. Yeah. So if we, if we're doing a search in petrochemicals. Um, shall we say it's a fairly homogeneous talent pool, um, despite our best efforts. And that that is true. That is true, kind of globally. Um, spec chem is a little bit in between. You get more um, uh, diverse talent there. And I think that it's best in the sort of the fine chemical end of things. Anything close to the consumer, fine chemicals, you know, cosmetic ingredients, codes, paints and coatings, things like that, that tends to have a better balance, I, I think. Um, so that's definitely one trend, this drive for diversity and inclusion. Uh, and obviously, we try very hard to do that. I mean, I'll give you, for example, on, on that one. We're doing a search right now for a... Uh, a 
a, uh, I suppose it's a, a bioproducts company, biopolymers company for, for a CEO, actually. Relatively small company over here in Europe. And amazingly, they have 43% female workforce, which is mm. unusual, very That's high. That's impressive. Yeah. It is very high. Yes, exactly. But I think the rest of the industry has a long way to go to catch up to that. And that is caused by a number of issues. It's also caused by less younger people moving into the um, into the industry, doing degrees in, in, the, in the STEM sciences um, over a number of years. So that's been declining for a number of years. And of course, that feeds through to finding it hard to find anyone, quite frankly, let alone diverse talent. So that's definitely right. one trend. Um, I, I think another one, I mean, obviously, artificial intelligence is so much in the news. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, for, 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 for good or ill, I think it will have an effect on executive search and, and, and the, the uh, candidates receiving um, the, uh, the briefs and things. I mean, whether that is useful or not, who knows? Um, I, I think we find it to be, uh, I suppose, well, I haven't come across it yet in our search, but I think it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to, to me, anything that obviously anything that, that can make things easier and more effective, more effective and more efficient for clients is always welcomed. Uh, but I think, you know, artificial intelligence will affect us. But I think, you know, ultimately hiring people is a people to people interaction, isn't it? And it, it may make the back office more efficient, but I think ultimately there is that need for, um, you know, the human interaction, the, the ability to look at the nuance behind people, what makes people tick, et cetera. So I think there'll be an increased focus on a, a quality search firm sort of partner who can get dig beneath the surface and 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 really work out what makes people tick, et cetera, alongside just simply finding people faster. So that's definitely a second trend. Um, I mean, other th trends, of course, uh, you know, everyone wants to work from home nowadays. Um, I'm I'm at home as as we speak. As a, <laughs> Me too. As I come yeah. you too. There you go. Um, but yeah, I think this this has an effect on people's mentality too. I think you know, it, on the one hand, it makes our job slightly easier because, quite frankly, you know, finding people and talking to them when they're working at home. Is easier than when they're in the uh, office. True. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 ultimately, I mean, the talent pool should be uh, it should be easier because, of course, there isn't this need to relocate people. So, I mean, so I think certain functions will always struggle with this. It won't help them. So, R and D and technical roles where you need to be on a plant, then, then yes, that won't help them. But I think sales roles and a lot of roles now, which are um, you know broader, and you can work remotely, um, that makes it easier to find people. Now, now, that's the plus argument. That the counter argument to that, of course, is that people value different things, don't they? So if I'm, if I'm happy in my job and I'm allowed to work from home five days a week and, uh, and I'm trying to sell a job to somebody where they have to go in the office two or three days a week, suddenly that's unappealing. Um, and so I think even though the talent may be easier to find, it doesn't necessarily mean they're easier to move. So I think that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting. Trend. And I think yeah. sometimes... One one of the things with that, uh, Stephen, is it's it's sometimes hard to know what it really is going to feel like when you make that shift and what that looks like. So, you know, I reflect back to when I went from Shell to Clarion. We had nine eighty system, um, very you know, so every other Friday off, and it was a very global company mm -hmm. and. Yeah, you could work from home period, you know, if you needed to, you just kind of set your schedule like that. And then I went over to Clarion, which number one, um, did not have 980. So you're in the office Monday through Friday. And I worked, my business was more relaxed about whether or not you were in the office, but the business I sat with was not. Um, 
And it's like, <clears throat> you kind of almost even realize the stress that that puts on you <laughs> until yeah, you're right. living in it. Um, and right. so, right. so I think this whole aspect, it's hard for, it's, it's easy for us to recognize the situation that we're in and the pros and cons and what we like about it. And we can, we think we can envision what the other scenario will be, but until you're actually in it, you don't know it. You, you don't. Uh, I've got another good example of this one, I suppose. I mean, we, we recently did a search um, uh, in Europe for an MD of a company. Um, and uh, one of the first candidates I called uh, indicated to me that they lived only 30 miles away, very close. And they said, perfect, easy, easy commute, no problem at all. You know, um, a month later or six weeks later, when it finally came down to an offer, they finally said, you know what? I just can't do it. I'm so used to working from home. I cannot envisage going in five days a week to... Um, to this location, even though it's only half an hour drive. Right. So I think, yeah, people, people have got institutionalized. And it's, uh, it's, a tr yeah. it's, it's difficult. Tricky, tricky times. Yeah, tricky. So, uh, yeah, so what did I say? Um, yeah, a few things, yeah. Diversity, mm. um, IT, uh, or... Um, AI. Um, AI, yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, the other, the other one I think that, I mean, kind of goes along hand in hand with all this in some ways is, um, you know, what, what companies are looking for. And I think this whole thing around soft skills has become... Um, you know, far more important uh, than it was before. Um, and I think, you know, in, in a work in a workplace where you know you've got to get that fit right, got to get that person's fit right, yeah. And the soft skill side of things has become again increasingly more important. We see it more with more senior roles. But um, what is but it I, when I you talk it, about soft skills? Yeah, what are you really referring to? I mean, because that covers yeah. a broad range. It does. It, it really refers to personality, motivation, uh, what makes people tick, yeah, as yeah. opposed to can they do the job. Um, mm. I mean, and, and I think, you know, the whole area of psychometrics, of course, is designed to try and address this whole issue. Uh, and yes, we use them, but I, I think one of the things we, we probably pride ourselves on is we're quite obsessive with not only interviewing the, the candidates, but also in some ways interviewing or looking at the, the you know, the, who they're working for. What is their personality like? Just to make sure you get that fit. Because, uh, you know, people leave jobs for all manner of reasons. And one of the biggest reasons is they just don't get on with their boss or their peers or something like this. And I think that's been now be recognized. So you've got to have a, a meeting of minds. And I think people have recognized this. So it's not enough now just to be able to do the job. You've got to make sure you fit the personality fits. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we spend time doing I'm going to challenge you on this a little bit, Stephen. Um, Go on. Because we started out talking about DEI and how important yep. that is. And yet, when you're judging people on fit, it can be anti-diversity of, of all varieties. You know, um, how do you get around that? I mean, because because one, DEI is often just seen as a metric and a target. And, you know, do I have... right? right. Right. Uh, representation of different races and genders and, and what have you. Um, it fits very important, but fit is also a really hard standard to meet. And a lot of people would argue that fit keeps the status quo. That's a very good, that's a very good point, actually, Victoria. It is. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, historically, you know, people hire people who look like them. That's what they've always said, yeah? And yeah. it's true. Similar uh, values. You look like me, you talk values. like me. We have similar yeah, values, etc. Similar body language, all this kind of thing. No, exactly. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, that, that I think has always been an issue. Uh, I mean, I think certain companies in the creative sectors do very well, that they recognize that, that you know, one size cannot fit all. 
Um, but I think that's definitely a hurdle to come over uh, or overcome. Um, I mean, I think things like psychometrics and things which are, I suppose, quasi-scientific to try and, you know, homogenize, you know, these things. So you're seeing the same set of skills with everybody, irrespective of diversity or background. That's important. Uh, we we run a particular one which is done in different languages. Uh, of course, that can't actually um, sort of uh, level out different attitudes to certain questions. That's always the hard thing. So, for example, somebody in the Far East, you know, do not like the people in Asia generally often do not like talking about themselves or promoting themselves. You know, people in the U.S. enjoy it very much, should I say? And I guess in Europe we're kind of in between, yeah. So you can never really iron out all those things. But I think if you are, if you are looking for a diverse slate, you have to almost recognize that you know, providing certain personality traits are there. Um, you know, you know, you have to almost ignore the rest uh, and recognize the fact that not everyone's going to be equal. Yeah. So, but I obviously take your point. I think people have always hired their own image, and I think that's a very hard thing to kind of break down. But I think having some kind of almost semi-independent method of of judging people and measuring them uh, against each other, which is irrespective of where they're from or what background they have, has got to be useful. Um, you know, we we didn't we don't always use them. Um, you know, often people have done psychometrics and things like this, and some of them are pretty much um, you know across the board. Um, things like Myers-Briggs and things most people worldwide have done. And there is some kind of similarity there. But I think some of the more elaborate techniques are quite useful in helping to yeah, select people. I could t- I could totally see that. And it absolutely needs to be a data point that gets factored yep. in along with everything else that, that goes yeah. into the equation. Indeed. Yeah. So you're sitting in Europe. We're, we're at a place in time where the pandemic the tw- let's just say all of the events of the 2020s have dramatically changed our world, ways of working, et cetera. But what I also see really striking right now is um, a certain amount of deglobalization. The regions, whether it be, and I'm going to just broadly group Asia, Americas, Europe, um, has different priorities and drivers, different stressors, like, you know, let's, the, the economic conditions in each of these regions is varying tremendously. How does, how do you see this ha- um, playing out and how does this play out in, in your world when you're thinking about executive search? Are your levels of activity different in different regions? Are the different regions looking for different things, whether it be skill set or okay. other um, things? Yeah, no. Okay, good good question. Um, I, mean, I think ultimately, you know, everyone wants the same thing, yeah? Everyone wants a candidate who is the best of the job, who will stay forever, and will never want to pay a rise, yeah? So that's what everyone wants. Uh, obviously, that doesn't happen. But I, I, think, I think in different regions, it, it, it's no, there's no question, different regions, I think culturally, um, people look for slightly different things. I think that's really what you're um, getting at here. Uh, so I, I, we find in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. Um, is very, very, and it's true. I think also um, of uh, India is a little bit like this. China is a bit like this. Japan is like this. Is very, very much um, you know governed by experience, your experience and your education. Where have you been in school? How good is that qualification, etc.? Um, is that experience relevant? That that is very much still, I think, front and center what people look for. Um, the other side of things, the soft side of things I mentioned earlier, I think are probably less critical, um, or they, they're often not looked at a great deal, uh, certainly U.S. hires. I mean, U.S. hires, 
Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to ask questions, certain questions, and you can't ask anything personal, of course, can you? Um, that makes it quite hard sometimes to really get beneath the surface of what makes people tick. That makes it harder. So I think after after COVID, I think things have changed in, in terms of culturally what people look for. That's still the same, but there have been some changes in terms of how people behave. Yeah. So I would say those countries probably are more based experience. In 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 other places like Europe, the Nordics, place like that, it's very very much a technically driven um, higher. Yeah, um, you know, technical experience and prowess in, in the area you're in, whatever field that is, is really the, the preeminent thing, I think. It almost eclipses um, overall experience or it certainly eclipses uh, sort of personality and things like that. And then I think the, the interesting one, the, the slightly harder one to do, um, would be places like um, Southern Europe, Middle East, maybe. Uh, and this very, very relationship driven. Um, and, and making a hire isn't so much. It's really, I hate to use the expression, who do you know? I mean, that's certainly part of it, of course, but it's really, it's the networking ability, the soft side, the likability of people. Do they fit the team? Those things are really very important. Um, in, and that's more a, a cultural stereotype in some ways, but it does seem to feed its way through into um, executive search too. So what we look for is on the surface, all the same. But I think once you get into the detail, what you're focusing on is slightly different depending upon where in the world you're hiring. Uh, I'm not sure. Did that answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And yeah, actually okay. it, it leads me in, it's a good segue into my next question, which is, you know, it, it, you allude to Southern Europe and Middle East being very relationship driven. And yeah, this whole aspect of how do you find candidates, right? So it seems that yeah. LinkedIn and other social media would like to be the place, right? I mm. mean, it's very easy to find yeah, it, it seems on the surface like it's very easy to find people in on those platforms, right. um, and yet, does it? How do how do you guys tackle this? How do you find yeah. the right people at the right time in the right place? Okay, so so we don't just rely upon LinkedIn. That's number one. I think that's a very Good. important point. <laughs> uh, I mean, LinkedIn. I mean, let's face it. No, no disrespect to LinkedIn. It's a wonderful tool very useful. Uh, but I, I equate it in some ways, it's a little bit like wandering into a library uh, and thinking, I want to buy a book on a certain subject. Where do I start? Without having a sort of clear idea what you're looking for, it can be really quite um, uh, overpowering. And it can waste an awful lot of time looking at things uh, without necessarily finding what you're looking for. And I think the other thing on things like LinkedIn, and, and it's true of all social media where you know um, individuals put their own profiles online, is that you know how believable are they? You know? I mean, people like people tend to exaggerate, um, uh, unfortunately, um, and you know they're not always current. So uh, we always have a sort of fairly healthy dose of cynicism, I suppose, when we look at people's profiles on LinkedIn. I uh, no, first of all, are they still doing that? You know, people often everything looks looks rosy, as you say, but people often aren't doing that, or they have other drivers or things they can't publicize. So yes, it's it's undeniably a useful tool. Um, thing like LinkedIn, there are, there are other ones too, as you know. Um, but yeah, so we, we use, I suppose, to, like anyone does, to identify certain individuals, to figure out who does what at certain companies, but certainly do not rely upon it exclusively. We can't. Uh, and unfortunately, what's happened in the world of executive search and, 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 uh, and talent is there's always been almost been a plethora of, um, you know, of new startups and companies doing what we do, um, who almost exclusively use that. Because, you know, again, it's an open book of names makes it easy. So what we would say is how we find people, how we find people, uh, then we have like five, I suppose, five ways we find them. 
um, you know, good old-fashioned executive search, i.e. calling companies, researching companies, figuring out who does what. Uh, we do a lot of that. Um, you know, obviously some of that can be cross-referenced on things like LinkedIn, but a lot of that cardhold research is important. We do that. Um, we also have, a, I think, one slight differentiator, which is we have an advisory board that we've set up over the over the years. I, I mentioned there's about 15 of us on the, the sharp end. Uh, but very early on um, doing this job, I realized that we can't possibly have knowledge of every aspect of the chemical industry. You know, that is such a multifaceted, fragmented industry. So we, we set about developing this advisory board. We have 72 of them, I think, um, which is quite good. And it, they cover a whole range of different parts of the industry. And so we go to them and say, look, who do you know in this network who's good? And they, of course, know where to go. That's useful. Um, I think our website is not bad, dare I say. We, we, we've, I think if you put it into Google, um, a chemical executive search, I think we're number one and two um, in lots of geographies. Yeah, we did something right years ago when we first set the site up. I'm not sure how, but there you go. I'm not going to mess with it. Um, yeah. So we have that way of doing it. And obviously, we have our own little net mini network as well, which we set up, um, a little sort of STEM LinkedIn that we set up. Uh, we use. It's got about 30,000 people or so on it. Um, so we use that. Obviously, we use LinkedIn and other networking media to find people. And you know, last but not least, I mean, our database has been around for, what, 23 years? Um, you know, it's constantly replenished, and there's a lot of people on there that we are still in touch with many, many years later. So we have sort of five, I suppose, pillars we use to find people, um, one of which one of which is LinkedIn. Um, so there you go. That's really cool. Are there particular industries or areas within the chemical industry that are most active right now when you look at talent, uh, talent development and talent movement? Yeah. Um, yes, there are. Uh, I would say, I would say, I mean, overall within the world of chemicals and talent, um, last year, um, you know, post COVID year was a big, big year, was a big bounce. And I think pretty much across the board, um, lots of companies were hiring, including strategically. So there were lots and lots of activity, which lasted, I would say late 21 up until about sort of the end of 2022. Um, this year now is definitely quieter, I would say across the board. And of course that is due to, um, you know, the macro picture, potential recession, uh, the war in uh, Ukraine, et cetera, all those things. So that's definitely slowed things down. But I think in terms of are there bright spots? Um, yeah, the answer is yes, there are. I mean, I think kind of anything anything connected with um, uh, circularity, sustainability, e-mobility, um, the environmental, anything like that is definitely bright. Um, so, for example, I mean, you know, in the distant past, you know, hydrogen was just an element. So with lithium, yeah. Um, so were rare earth metals, although well, that was the first job we ever did, actually, many years ago, it was in rare earth metals. Um, but yeah, but of course, all those things now are very much front and center of the, of the world economy. So yes, anything connected with e-mobility, environmental, circularity, they are very, very hot. What's good for us, actually, is that a lot of the companies involved with these areas uh, are often startups or early stage ventures, um, technology-driven ventures in carbon capture or uh, or lithium extraction or things like this. So yeah, so they are interesting. And the reason we like those companies, of course, is that they don't tend to have enormous talent acquisition teams. It means we get to do the whole thing and act as a true partner. So yeah, so I think anything in those areas across the board uh, are definitely uh, in vogue. Uh, we've, we've worked for a number of them in those various technologies um, over the last sort of couple of years. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I think in the, 
again, getting back to maybe a regional perspective, I know that certainly from a North American perspective, um, you know, there's this whole conversation of the war on talent and just the availability of talent. How does that play out in uh, Europe and Asia? Because also I've seen recently, I know China's been in the news a lot recently just with their economy not recovering very well post-COVID um, and, right. you know, right. with new hires lying or you know, new graduates lying down on the street because they are yeah. not able to find jobs and stuff, which I know that's not the, the candidate pool you're targeting, but right. how does this play out uh, geographically um, in terms of talent demand and availability? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I think globally, it's a similar kind of picture. Um, I mean, I mean, certainly in terms of availability. Yeah? So there, there is this perception. In fact, clients often have this perception that the world is awash with candidates just, just dying to get a job at their company. Uh, that isn't the case. I mean, you know, the US has very high employment rates. Um, the same in the UK, Europe, most of Europe too. I think China is probably slightly different situation due to its own um, issues right now. Um, but yeah, but I think there's two things. Number one, uh, you know, there aren't that many, there isn't that much um, sort of flex in the system. Many people are employed. Um, the other thing being, of course, that a lot of people don't want to move. And I think what's happened here at post-COVID is people's values have changed. Um, it used to be, of course, you join a chemical company, you just stay there and you get progression and you move up to the ranks. Um, it, it doesn't seem that way as much anymore. People value the work-life balance much more now, I think, they did than they did before COVID. Yeah, um, that's definitely one thing. Um, you know, so whether it be work-life balance or whether it be location, people want to work remotely. They like this kind of thing as well. Uh, those things play a lot more than they did before. And what that means is, even though you know, finding people who are out there looking for jobs is got harder because there are less of them, and actually moving people from one company to another who are actually happily employed has also got harder unless you obviously are prepared to offer a big incentive uh, financially or, or something else. So it, it definitely played out. I think globally, this is this is what's happened. And it, it's definitely a uh, sort of a, a, a repercussion of of COVID. Uh, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, in the US, we, we did a, a search during COVID um, for a, uh, a sort of super duper sales person in the States. And I think the average salary then uh, in the chemical sector was sort of, you know, for a good salesperson, 100, 120, uh, maybe a tiny 130, um, you know, as a base salary. You know, the same people, the same jobs now are costing 140, 160, 175 for the same thing. Um, so there's this definite inflation of uh, expectation of salaries, which is partly due, of course, to inflation, but it's also just due to scarcity of of supply. Of candidates and and that's feeding its way through so that's the case in the states i think in europe it's a very very similar story to be frank with you um uh, i can't really i can't really give you a, an idea with a lot of asia it's, it's it's sort of similar to a point i think china's china's different because china definitely has this um you know a, a problem with the uh, uh the actual companies themselves and not supplying and therefore there's a glut of candidates that's different that's different but I think I think after COVID, these are macro trends are affecting everybody in a similar kind of way. I would say across the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. What strikes me about it is it's almost a um, from a work, you know, from a work life balance, uh, location value perspective. It's almost like it's back to the 1950s, right? Where there was there was the the home based values were much stronger, um, and that drove people's decisions about 
where to live, where to work, et cetera. So it's obviously vastly different time that we're in now. And yet um, maybe in certain aspects of our lives, our values have uh, have reverted a bit, right? So we're just kind of in continual yeah. evolution. Yeah, it may not be a bad thing. I think providing the profitability is there and you know, productivity is there. Uh, is it a bad thing? Most people don't think so. So yeah. So awesome. there you go. So so what's yeah. your number one piece of advice to candidates that are looking to get hired, hoping to get hired, making a move, hopefully for more money, because we all like more money when we make a move. What what falls into your top pieces of advice for people? Interesting. Interesting. Um don't do it for the money. I think that's the that's the number one advice I would give. Do it for the fact you like the company and you like the role. And the money, to, I would think, will, will catch up with you. You'll get what you need. Uh, I mean, what I would say to, to I suppose, in the earlier stage people uh, who've asked me the same kind of question, what's the best way to get progression? And I would say the same thing, which is don't you know, have outside interests. Do not focus your whole life on that job. And I tend to find in what we do, some of the most successful people we know, you know, are, you know, they're captain of the local rugby club, or they are football scholars, or they do various things, or they're involved with their school's governorship program, whatever it may be. But having having sort of very strong external values and external uh, activities seems to feed through and make you somehow more valuable. Um, and you're not so dwelling only on the money. So I think that that's one thing I would definitely say. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Um, Final question. What's your outlook on hiring for the rest of 23 and then heading into 24? Uh, I would say, uh, I think 23 is, has been quite flat. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think until things sort themselves out with, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine, I mean, that, that's a definite uh, suppressor of, of, of economic activity. Do we know where we are with that? And, you know, the, the threat of the looming recession dwindles. Um, I think it'll still so fairly flat. Yeah, well, we know where we are with that. It will pick up again. Um, as I said to you, I mean, some of these areas uh, are still fairly robust, um, but I think the heavy end of the chemical industry is still, and it's so it's so dependent upon energy prices, et cetera, and which are the problem. Uh, the middle bit, of course, is based upon the consumer demand for pool chemicals and cars and polyurethanes and things like that. And all the time that there's flattened consumer demand, they'll be flattened. Uh, so I, I think the, 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 the bright spark to the bright part still is probably, as I said to you before, you know, fine chemicals, pharma, um, agrochemicals, things like that. They're, they're, they're feeding into things that people still need. So they are still fine. But I think the, the other part of the industry, as I said, the heavy end and the specialty end won't pick up, I don't think, this year. Probably some point in 24, I've got a feeling it'll pick up back up again uh, once we're hopefully past the threat of recession. Perfect. Sounds great. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned and we'll see where that plays out. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today on The Chemical Show. really enjoyed our conversation. Great pleasure, Victoria. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks everyone for joining us today. Keep listening, keep following, keep sharing, and we will talk to you again soon. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.